Our Father, we are grateful that you rule over the affairs of the nations and of men. You rule over history and you rule over the future. We exist because you spoke the world into existence. You are the creator, you are the sustainer, you are the overseer. But we live in a world that is so centered on men. We live in a world that is so centered on great nations. We live in a world that is so taken with technology and growth and well we're just we're just centered on this earth and our tendency is to forget about you but you rule over the affairs of men our god is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases his throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all the psalmist said it's in times like these that we are grateful for your absolute sovereignty. The, 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 and, and if we're really thinking straight, we're grateful for your sovereignty and your goodness and your providence 24-7. But we are at a critical point in this nation. We have an election coming up that um, is pivotal for where we're going and the future of our children and our grandchildren, that is not to overstate it. It's just reality. And we have our uh, social media and we have our conversations and we have our blogs and our discussions and our news channels and all of this. And we have our concerns and we see the swings, and a week ago it was here, and now it's there, and well, what's going to happen in the days ahead? We don't know. You know. We are grateful that we live in a nation where we have the privilege to vote. So many people don't get to register their opinion and their choice, but we do. You've given us that responsibility. It's fascinating to watch how in this election, people who seriously are followers of yours, who take your word seriously, are so divided. You're sovereign over that. That's no mistake. One man can eat, off, meat, one man can eat meat offered to idols, and one man can't. One man can vote for X, and one man can't. You oversee it all. We are grateful that you are the one who raises up rulers, and you set them down. You raise up kings, and you set them down. That's Daniel chapter 2. We will vote, but our comfort and our hope and our trust is in the fact that you've already chosen. Do we always understand your purposes? No, oftentimes we don't, because your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But Lord, we know this, your plan and your purposes cannot be thwarted. 
Absolutely, they cannot be thwarted. Your, your plan cannot be thwarted by uh, illegal voters. Your, your plan cannot be thwarted by dead voters. Your plan cannot be thwarted by voting machines that have been played with. Your plan cannot be altered by media or by backroom deals or your plan cannot be thwarted, period. That's impossible. So we move ahead, trusting in you, looking to you. Our hope is in you. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is not in a party. Our hope is not, it's in you period. And you will be the same God next week as you are today. You raise them up and you set them down. And in the midst of all of the changes of life and the changes of government and the changes of peace and war and controversy among nations and within nations, you rule and you reign. That's our comfort. That's our hope that enables us to sleep at night. We hold on to your faithfulness and your goodness and your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're continuing our study, we're calling it Godly and Gutsy. Um, we're looking at uh, men in Scripture, godly men, uh, men who follow the Lord in the midst of great opposition. We haven't had much opposition in America to Christianity and to the Bible. We've had freedom for over 200 years. But as you know, uh, everything is shifting and everything is changing, and we are having to... Um, we are having to get used to what most Christians in other parts of the world historically have dealt with. It's been the norm. Uh, persecution, adversity, uh, not freedom of religion, not freedom of speech. Uh, we haven't had to deal with that. Now we're starting to deal with it. So uh, what's going to be required is that we're going to have to continue the process of following the Lord. Uh, when you follow him, the more you follow him, the more you become like him. Uh, that's godliness, not that you're perfect. You'll never be perfect on this earth. But when we go to be like him, we'll, 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 there's going to be an amazing transformation. But not until then. So we're learning to be godly. We all start out ungodly, but we're learning to be godly. So. We're looking at godly men who stood up to great opposition. And to stand up to great op opposition takes guts. Uh, the definition in the dictionary of gutsy is marked by uh, courage and determination. So this is nothing new, but we're just having to kind of get ready for what's coming. Tonight we're going to look at one of the all-time greats, and that's Elijah. Elijah, uh, in, the, in the New Testament... When that cloud came down, we call it the, the transfiguration of Jesus. 
there were two men talking with Jesus. One was Moses, one was Elijah. Uh, Elijah is, is a Hall of Famer prophet. And one of the reasons he's a Hall of Famer is that he was gutsy. And he put his life on the line. And he spoke truth, regardless of the personal cost. He, uh, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Kings 17. And what we're going to do, actually we'll, we'll kick off in 16. We're going to move pretty quickly tonight. I, I want to give you a helicopter view of Elijah. Because Elijah it was up against one of the absolute most evil kings in the history of Israel. And not only was he up against this evil king, he was up against his wife, who was even more evil than he was. Uh, their names were Ahab and Jezebel. If you look at 1 Kings 16, we get a little background on Ahab and Jezebel. Now, uh, beginning with 29. Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. So what is this all about? Remember when we had a, remember when our nation split and we had a civil war, you had the north and the south? Well, they kind of had something similar that happened in Israel, only they didn't go to war. Uh, you had uh, Saul, then you had David, then you had uh, Solomon, first three kings. But when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over, uh, as wise as his father was, he was that much of a fool. And within 72 hours, he split the nation in, in half, basically. Actually, 10 tribes went to the north. They were called Israel. And then you had two tribes in the south, which were Judah and Benjamin. They were known as Judah. Okay. So at this section of history, you got two nations. You got the north, which is Israel. You got the south, which is Judah. Jeroboam was the first king, not Rehoboam, Jeroboam was the first king of the north. And what Jeroboam did is that he now had power. He now had 10 tribes and he wanted to hold on to power. Now God required that the men of Israel go down to Jerusalem into the southern kingdom three times a year. He didn't want them going down because he didn't want to lose their allegiance. So he came up with a, his administration had a new plan. And they had a new vision. Uh, they were going to do a great society. What they were going to do was they were going to do a counterfeit to what God had said. He didn't want them going down because he was afraid he would lose control and lose power. So what he does is he sets up his own religion. He sets up his own festivals. You don't have to go all the way down there. My gosh, how far is that? It's so inconvenient. We're going to pull off our own deal. And we're going to make it easy for you. We're going to be multi-campus. You can go to Dan or you can go over to Bethel, whatever you want to do. And this is going to be great. You're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. We're going to have these two golden calves. We're going to have Ferris wheels. We're going to have popcorn. We're going to... I'm kind of exaggerating. But that's basically what he did. And what he did was the first king of the north and then all the kings of the north were wicked and they turned the people away from God. Okay? There's a little context for you. So Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the north. Ahab, the son of Omri, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord, watch this, more than all who were before him. He outdid them in terms of evil and turning the hearts of the people away from God. Well, how, how did he do that? Well, it's explained in verse 31. 
It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the first king. That he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. In the Old Testament, you'll read about Baal worship. Baal worship was despicable. It turned the hearts of the people away from the Lord God. It was, uh, it was demonic. That's what it was. There were three traits of Baal worship. There were more, but I'm going to give you three. Uh, they were, uh, the, the first one is they were pro-choice after the baby was born. They did something called child sacrifice. They, uh, to show your allegiance to Baal, you would take your, your baby infant, your baby infant son, and they would have these, you know, everybody would get liquored up and they'd, you know, get in whirling dervishes and they're all ju- juiced and they're, they got the drums pounded and they work themselves up into a fervor. And they had this Baal, Moloch, God, big statue. They'd build a fire in his back, hands extended, and to show your allegiance, you'd take your firstborn little baby and throw it into the hands and your baby would be immolated before your eyes. Now that's wicked. That's godless. Uh, these guys were the Planned Parenthood of the Old Testament. You see, we've, we've aborted 60 million babies in this country. 60 million. And those who support such actions, and you support such actions by supporting those in power that make such actions possible, they are bathed in blood, the blood of those babies. Just know that, and don't forget it. Secondly, they were pro-sexual anything. And I mean that. Uh, They were uh, sexual anarchists. No restraints on sexuality. the, uh, Baal was one of the many gods. You know, the Greeks had gods. These guys, they all had gods. They had gods for the grocery store. They had gods for the mountains. They had gods for the valley. You know, they, if you drove a Chevy, they had a god. If you drove a Jeep, I mean, they, they had all these gods. It was insane. And all these different tribes and nations had gods. Um, all, uh, and, and of course, none of it was real. They are myths. They had all these Baal myths. They were all sexual. They were all perverse. They were all twisted. Uh, Baal killed his father. Uh, before he did, he castrated him. Uh, uh, had incestuous sexual relations with his uh, sisters. And it's pretty much all we can say in here. Uh, it, uh, it got a lot worse than that. They had three kinds of prostitutes in Baal worship. Uh, male prostitutes, female, sodomites because uh, publicly in their worship services, they would act out in public. You ever been to church and they have drama? Well, these guys had drama. They would act out uh, on, on their stages, the, the sexual stories, and, and the prostitutes would act out in front of everybody. And, uh, and there, were, there were no restrictions whatsoever. 
Anything, anything you can imagine took place. So it was wicked. It was vile. Um, thirdly, it was marked by their belief in climate change. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. They believed Baal controlled the rain, the storms, the agricultural cycles, the growing seasons. They believed that Baal gave prosperity and fertility to the earth and the produce, the crops, it all, the rain, everything came from Baal. Ahab marries this woman, Jezebel. Her, her father's name is Ethbaal, which means um, with Baal. I mean, she is dyed in the wool. She's a Baal worshiper. And he married her and brought her into the, to the nation that belonged to the Lord. J. Vernon McGee describes Jezebel this way. She was a masculine woman with strong intellectual powers and a fierce passion for evil. She was strong-willed and possessed a dominant personality, but she had no moral sense. She was hardened into insensibility. She was unscrupulous and the most wicked person in history, bar none. And he's exactly right. Absolutely right. You say, that, you say but Ahab was king. He was king. But uh, she ran him. She dominated him. She told that sucker how high to jump, and he jumped. And because she ran him, she ran the nation. Now, with that introduction, let's go to 1 Kings 17, and we're going to meet Elijah. Elijah shows up. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, and, and, and this, this is the first time he shows up. He just shows up. Uh, shows up at the palace. Uh, he wasn't invited. He just showed up. Somehow got through security, just showed up, and he eyeballs Ahab and Jezebel, and he tells them straight out. Here's what he said. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's it. And then he left. That's what he told them. That's a beautiful area up in that northern uh, section of Israel, Samaria. You can visit it today. Um, th this was a direct slap in the face of Baal. You think Baal runs things? I'm going to show you who runs things. Yahweh runs things. Notice he said there will be no rain. He also said there will be no dew. And in that part of Israel, certain times a year, there is a tremendous amount of dew in the mornings, so much so that you don't need, need rain. It's enough to keep the vegetation and the grass and the crops going. But I'm going to show you the power of Almighty God over this demonic entity called Baal. I'm going to show you the power of Yahweh, who created the earth and sustains the earth by his power. And he's going to turn off the spigot, and there only will be rain. You won't even see dew. You won't see a drop of dew for three and a half years. And that's exactly what happened. And then he's out of there, and he's on the run. 
And you could read that God took him in the next verses to a brook called Cherith, uh, fed him by the ravens, uh, the water of the brook. Then when that dries up, by the way, whatever provision God gives you that makes you comfortable, at some point it's going to dry up and you're going to have to trust him all over again. That's just how it works. Oh, I've had this income. Oh, that's great. Oh, man, this has been there for years and years. And one day you get a letter. Oh, my gosh, that's over. Now what am I going to do? Gosh, I might have to trust God. It's kind of how it works. We go from faith to faith. You see? There's always something in our lives we're having to trust Him. So then God takes him from the brook at Cherith and the ravens, and he takes him up into her hometown, surrounded by Baal worshipers, and there's a woman up there who has a son who's getting ready to die because they're about to starve, and basically God is going to use her to take care of Elijah, and he says, hey, make me a, you know, a waffle and you know, some syrup or whatever he said, uh, and she said, hey, listen, we're going to eat our last meal and die, and he said, go ahead and make it for me, and she did. And he said, because you've done this and trusted in the Lord God, that barrel during this drought and that, oil, that barrel of flour and the oil, it'll never run dry, ever. And it never did. Never. Did, did, did they build her a Costco warehouse and she had all of that and she could see it every day when she got up? No. She got nothing changed, but every time she'd go in to get that flour and to get that oil, it was there. Every time. Uh, let's go to verse 18, uh, chapter 18. Because now, we, and again, I got to helicopter this. We can't stop and look at every event. But we, we're kind of going to do this the way I watch most football games. I, I used to have time to watch football games. I don't anymore, so I'll catch the highlights. You should catch the highlights. Okay. If you look at chapter 18, you're going to see once again the wickedness of Jezebel. What happens is, is that Ahab has a guy in his administration who fears the Lord. And, uh, well, let's just read it. 18.3. Actually, starting to, uh, th- this is three years later, okay? 18.1 says, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. James says it, it was a three-and-a-half-year drought. Okay, so this is three years into it. He's hiding. Um, God's protecting him. Now it's time to go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Okay? It's time. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them bread and water. So she, this, this woman was bloodthirsty. She was a killer. Not only was she against the one true God, she was against the people of God and the prophets of God. Uh, Obadiah says, listen, I, I, I know what will happen. I'll go tell Ahab you want to meet him, and then you have a way of just disappearing, and he'll show up, and you won't be there. He said, I'll be there. You go tell him I want to meet with him. So you get to verse 17. Of 18, the first kings. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? You know what's fascinating to me? Is that those who are wicked, who are in power, look at those who love God and his word, and they see them 
as the troublemakers, always without exception, without exception. Now watch Elijah, though, stand up to him and just give it to him straight. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So they had, uh, the, the, the Asherah was a, a similar type of uh, demonic-inspired religion that took people away from the Lord God. So they had a total of 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets uh, of the Asherah, and they supported every one of them. But, but what, what was important is they were against the one true God. That's what was important. So here we go. This is going to get interesting. And you can visit Mount Carmel today. It, it's, uh, and you can see where this all took place. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Uh, uh, these, these people had bought into the Monroe Doctrine. Not, not, not James Monroe, um, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, at one point, Marilyn Monroe said, I believe in everything, just a little bit. That's true for a lot of people. They believe in anything. They believe in everything, uh, just a little bit. That doesn't work with the Lord God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't believe everything a little bit. You believe in him with everything you've got. That's how it works. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. And that's what he's putting on the line to these people. 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. It's 450 on one. Now, let us give, now, let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that's a good idea. Peter Drucker used to say, when the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. That, that is a brilliant statement. When the facts are clear, get your facts straight. And when the facts are straight, the decision jumps out at you. All right, you say Baal's God, Let's do, you put the bull, cut him up, quarter that sucker, I'll do the same thing. Then we're going to call down fire from heaven, and whatever God answers with fire, he's God. Those are the facts. I, I'm... Uh, 
you know, I, I pause. And this is a longer pause than normal. Um, He is taking on a powerful political dynasty that is absolutely contrary to the things of God. You see this often in Scripture. You see often in Scripture people raise up through various means and they, are, uh, they have a bloodlust for power and control. A bloodlust. And they'll do anything to get it. Absolutely anything to get it. They're in the Old Testament. They're in the New Testament. They're, they're in history. They're in contemporary society. They're, they're always around. Um, Ahab and Jezebel had a dynasty going. He, he, he got the power from his father, who was wicked and evil. And they were going to keep this dynasty going, as we'll see in a little bit. Uh, Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Vain. If God's not in it, a lot of people are building a house. A lot of people are building uh, a family. A lot of people are building um, a business. A lot of people are, some people are trying to build this or a political machine or they're trying to build this unless the Lord builds the house they who labor labor in vain let me show you uh, Psalm 49 Um, just take a little breather here and then come back to what's going on at Mount Carmel Psalm 49 these people with a bloodlust for power for control um, and all you do is read history. They're everywhere. Uh, they, 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 they love money. They love wealth. They're greedy. They'll do anything to get it. Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me? Do you know how relevant this is? When the sins of my foes surround me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Look at verse 10. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. They got a dynasty. No, your house isn't forever. And their dwelling place to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that will perish. 14. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, the place of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd. 16, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. 
Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. So a man without understanding of God, who rejects God and his truth and his word and spends his time on the earth accumulating wealth and has greed and wants power and control, that's his end. Um, Flip over to Psalm 73. One of, uh, one of the problems that happens in Scripture, and it was a problem in this day, and it's a problem in our day, is you look around and you see God's people suffering and you see the wicked flourishing. The, the dilemma is why... Do the righteous suffer, and why do the wicked prosper? I mean, it's just baffling. And the guy in Psalm 73 is, is, is so absorbed with this and so aware of it that he almost loses his faith. Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the pro as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. What that means is their body is healthy, everything's going their way. They are not in trouble as other men, although they're lawless. Nor are they plagued like mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. Don't cross them, don't get near them, because something's going to happen to you that's not good. Their eyes bulge from fatness, from prosperity, from well-being. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They love to oppress people because they want to be in control. They speak from on high because they have power. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Um, you ever wondered about this? They get away with murder. They get away with everything. But the righteous are suffering, and the wicked are flourishing. 11. The wicked say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. What's the deal here? I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to obey your word. I'm trying to apply your truth to my heart and my life. And I keep getting nailed, and this hits me, and this hits me, and I'm suffering, and I got adversity. And these people are utterly godless. They're wicked. They're vile. They're in complete rebellion against you. And, they're, and they prosper, and nobody can touch them. They're Teflon. Surely in vain, 13, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I can't get over this. This is, this is an issue for me. If I had said I will speak this, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now watch this. He, he, he was careful what he was going to say because he knew he was on thin ice. So he says this in 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. There's always an end. There's always an end. Don't ever forget that. There's always an end. 
These people think this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there is another world. And all judgment has been given to the Son. That's why you don't take vengeance. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3. For let those who long to see life and enjoy good days refrain their tongues from speaking deceit. You leave vengeance to the Lord. You, you, you don't get into revenge. You don't get into payback. Because you see, one day, there's going to be an end. There's going to be an end. Because of the gospel, we know we're all sinners. We all start out ungodly. All of us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we come to hear the gospel and we understand that Jesus I quote this often. I'm going to quote it again. 1 Corinthians 15. We delivered you as of first importance. This is the most important thing in all of the world. I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. Came out of that tomb, literally, bodily. He appeared to Peter. Appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 at one time, and none of them recanted. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for me and for you. So he, he who was innocent, he, who, he went to the cross, took my sin upon him, took your sin with his broken body and with his blood, he paid for our sin. And made it possible that for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Uh, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've been into. You might have been the, you know, the head of the Baal embassy in Dallas. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you, it doesn't matter. You may, you've been held by captive by Satan to do his will. Doesn't matter. When you call on the name of the Lord, whom the Son has set free, is free indeed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. You see? But you got to figure out what's the truth. You got to figure out what are the facts. So that gets us back to Mount Carmel. Let's go back to 1 Kings. So what you got here, and actually we're in 18, you got the 450 prophets, and you got uh, Elijah. So the people say, that's a good idea. So you get in 26, and the Baal guys, they build their, you know, their altars, and then they, you know, they cut up the bullock, and they put him on there, and they start crying out to Baal. Oh, Baal, Baal. And they start early in the morning, and they're going... Uh, and, and, you know, they're going for several hours. It's almost lunchtime. It came about at noon, verse 27. Elijah mocked them and said, I love this, he mocked them. Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside. I mean, literally in the Hebrew, listen, uh, he's in the toilet. What's, where is he? He's somewhere. That's what he's saying. He's in the outhouse. My gosh, he probably can't hear you. Or maybe he went on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened because he's exhausted. 
So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom and swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. You ever see any of these pictures of ISIS and these uh, ceremonies these guys go through in the Middle East? Have you ever seen them cut themselves? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When midday was past, they, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention because there is no bail. Elijah said near to all the people, come near to me. All the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which, he'd been, which had been torn down. He took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So he builds an altar, but he doesn't build an altar. If you look at verse 32, he builds a trench around the altar. Then he arranges the wood, cuts the ox in pieces, puts it on the wood, and he says, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Drown it, douse it. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are the Lord, that you are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Watch this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. There you go. Oh, but it's not done yet. Here's the rest of the story. You see, it hasn't rained for three and a half years, and then immediately, they kill the prophets, and immediately, verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab and his family dynasty, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a roar of a heavy shower. Well, nobody heard anything. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. When you stand on Mount Carmel, you can look out to the west, and you can see the Mediterranean. He said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and said, I don't see anything. There's nothing. He said, go back. And he said it seven times. There's nothing. Go back. Nothing. Go back. Seven times. It came about the seventh time. He said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and get down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind. There was a heavy shower. Why? Because Yahweh, Yahweh owns the environment. Yahweh is in charge of climate change. And anything else is idolatry. I don't care how many PhDs you have. It's absolute idolatry to the living God. This is great. This is the thrill of victory. But the next chapter, you got the agony of defeat. And what's fascinating about this is that there was no defeat. Uh, so, next verse, chapter 19. You guys still with me? Okay. This is better than Alfred Hitchcock. This is wild stuff. 
This, this whole thing's wild. Where we are right now is wild. This whole election coming up. I mean, this, this is wild. Every time you get up in the morning, you're something else. You're kid. No. Yeah. This is. Yeah. What? Are you kidding me? My son Josh texted me the other day. He said, have you ever seen anything like this? I said, no. He said, this is unbelievable. I said, it is. And I, I wrote him back something like, I'm so glad that God has written the script. I'm so glad that he's the producer, that he's the director, that, they, that he's the screenwriter. And I can't wait till next week. to see what kind of ending he's already come up with. It's going to be wild. Whatever happens, it's going to be wild. Now, here's the deal. He has this great victory, and what happens? Ahab takes off back to Jezreel. And here's the deal. Ahab um, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, here's the deal. This woman didn't make idle threats. This, this woman was Charles Manson in a pantsuit. <laughs> this, this, woman, this woman was dangerous. This woman was wicked. If you crossed her, if you got too close to her, bad things happened. Already killed the prophets, right? Already killed them. And now she's threatening him. Verse 3, he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. This sucker starts sprinting south to get away from this woman and from her reach. Uh, he, went his, he went by himself, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness to hide out, came, sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. He said, it's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He's, he's done. He's had it. He's spent. You ever been exhausted? Do not become weary in well-doing, the scriptures say. But see, it's easy to become weary in well-doing. It's, it, you know what, it's hard to be faithful. We don't, we don't go around whining about it. It's hard to get up every day and go to work and be faithful. It, it's hard to stay married. It's hard to stay faithful because there's so many temptations. There's so many lies. There's so many opportunities. It's so easy to abandon your post. It's so easy to run. What happens is we get battle fatigue. This, so what happened to this guy? You read the commentators and they're all freaked out. about. He got exhausted. He was a guy. James says Elijah was a man just like us. You ever get worn out? Sure you do. You ever get exhausted? You ever just get spent? Man, this guy had been battling this stuff for three years. He'd been on the run for three years. He stands up. Do you know what that took to stand up against these satanic hordes and take these people on? He was absolutely, he wasn't on fumes. He was beyond fumes. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, 
there was an angel touching him and he said, arise and eat. I think this was a theophany. I think this was an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord. There you go. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. In Psalm 139, David said, I love the Lord. That's another psalm. In 139, he says, ah, He says, You understand my thought from afar. Wherever you are in life, wherever you are today, whatever's going on in your heart, you may not even understand yourself. It, you know, oftentimes other people don't understand us. But sometimes we get so screwed up, we don't even understand ourselves. Does that ever happen to you? I, I've had times when I, I, I've been driving, I've been driving to church, and someone does something, and I yell at them. I just yell at them. They're probably an usher at the church. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they can't hear. I just yell at them. And then, you know, and, the question, and then I'll, I'll catch myself. And go, why am I so angry? You're, you're, and you, sometimes you're, you don't even know why. I'm so screwed up half the time, I don't even know why I'm angry. I don't, how can other people understand me? I don't even understand myself. Here's the psalm I was going to. I love the Lord because he, he hears my voice and he understands he gets me. He understands me. He knows when I'm spent. He knows when I'm out of gas. He knows when I'm running on fumes. He knows when I'm confused. He understands my thought from afar, and whatever I need, he'll give it to me when I need it. If you need sleep, he'll give you sleep. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. You need bread, he'll give you bread. You need oil, you need flour, he'll give it to you. He may not give you Costco, but he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you daily. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. He knows where you are. He's got you. You're one of his guys. He's got your back. That's what happened here. This guy is worn out. We got to keep moving. That should encourage you if you're worn out and confused about where you are right now. He gets you. He's for you. He will heal you up. He will give you what you need. He will minister to your heart. It might take some time. He'll give you some R&R. &R. He might take you off the field, put you on injured reserve, let you go into rehab, get in the jacuzzi a little bit, you know, work your way back in. But you're not done. You're just being prepared for what's next. And in 1 Kings 20, verse 15, now he's rested. Now he's all taped up. Now he's ready to go. And now he's going to get his new assignment. Okay? Before he's, he's done, he's finished. Oh, Lord, just take me. No, no, I'm not taking it. Your work's not done. Look at the assignment in verse 15. By the way, in 14, this is important. Once again, he says, at the end of 14, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He keeps thinking he's the only guy. And he's not the only guy. I remember a period in my life where I decided I would never trust anyone who was a Christian again. 
if I wasn't related to him by blood. I'm dead serious. I trusted my wife. I trusted my mom and my dad and my brothers. That's pretty much it. Especially if you had a Bible, especially if you were in ministry. You were a suspect to me. You know why? Because I'd been burned by some guys. Not once, not twice, several times, I thought, that's it. Well, you, you don't get in the microwave and heal up over that in 20 minutes. But you know what? There was a process. I learned. I learned to forgive. I learned to get my eyes off men and get my eyes on Jesus. Men will fail you. The best of men will fail you. Jesus never fails. Jesus never disappoints. Christians will disappoint you. Jesus will never disappoint you. Ever. So now it's time to get back in the game. 15. The Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall... Now he's going he's to tell him to anoint three men to do three different tasks. You're not alone. I got some guys I want you to anoint, and they're going to help you finish out this work, and you're going to take down by my power this family, godless, demonic family dynasty that's robbed me of my glory. <laughs> Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, well, we know about Elisha, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. You're going to mentor him. And then when it's time for you to come and be with me, he's going to, he's going to take your position. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. We're going to finish this thing. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know, when you think that there's no one you can trust, even in the church, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There are men in the church who are sexual predators. I've met them, and so have many of you. They're good up front. They can get followers. They can build a ministry. It's all built on sand. Because in their heart, they're against him. Matthew 6, 7. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, we did works of miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. There are counterfeit preachers. There are counterfeit prophets. There are counterfeit theologies. You stay in the Word of God. But know this. Maybe you've been burned, but I'm going to tell you something. I was burned, but let me tell you something. There's some godly people. There's some godly folks. There's some godly men and godly women who maybe aren't in the limelight and aren't well known. You can trust them. And I'll tell you, there are quite a few in the limelight who are humble, who love the Lord, who have been tested in fire, 
and they can be trusted. You know what I'm talking about. Don't let a few bad apples destroy your faith. Don't let it happen. It's a, it's a tactic of Satan. You guys still with me? All right. Now we got to go to 1 Kings 21. Now we got to go to uh, Naboth's vineyard. Now, some of you know this story. We've got to take a little time on it. Naboth had a vineyard right next to Ahab and Jezebel's palace. And Ahab really wanted that piece of land. What eventually brought this family dynasty down, they got involved in a land deal. It, it's in the text. And he never recovered from it. I love the Word of God. I absolutely love it. Don't you tell me the Bible is not relevant. It's relevant on every page. Hegel said history teaches us that men never learn from history. Someone said a historian is a prophet in reverse. You want to know where this country is going? Then look in your scriptures to Israel and Judah under godless leadership. God may be merciful. He may be merciful. But then again, he may send judgment. We'll see. I, I'm going to read this to you. But before I read it, I wrote down five truths this morning from this encounter with Ahab, uh, with, with, with Naboth and his vineyard. And let me give them to you. They're either in this text or in the surrounding text. These are five truths about Ahab and Jezebel. Number one, they loved wealth and were absolutely ruthless in pursuing their greed. They loved wealth, and they were absolutely ruthless in pursuing their greed. Number two, they were utterly lawless and beyond prosecution. Killed the prophets. Nothing was done. Nothing was said. Nobody would speak up. Three, instead of serving the people of the nation, they used the people for their own greed and gain. It's all in the text. Number four, they were incredibly corrupt and a cancer to the nation. Number five, they would lie, steal, and kill in their lust for power. I'll show it to you. Now it came about, I'm in 21 of 1 Kings, it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house. I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. 
Naboth said to Ahab, watch this, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth, Naboth was a man of God. He knew the scriptures. Basically, he knew the Lord. This was against the law of the Lord because in Leviticus 25, verse 23, you could not take your family land, your family inheritance, and tell it to somebody else. You couldn't do it. It was against the law. But Ahab didn't get that because he was utterly corrupt and lawless. All he knows is he wants it. So, verse 4, Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth had spoken to him. He said, uh, Naboth said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. So he lay down in his bed, turned away his face, and ate no food. Put his finger in his mouth, his thumb. Jezebel's wife came and said to him, How is it your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth. And, you know, I said, Give me your vineyard. He, he wouldn't do it. He said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said, Do you not now reign over Israel? Do you, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten that you're above the law? Have you forgotten that whatever you want is yours because of your power? That's what she's telling him. Do you not now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread. Let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote, e, uh, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, Watch the conspiracy that she thinks is hidden from God. Watch what she's doing in the darkness that she thinks will never come into the light. She sent letters to the elders and the nobles who were living with Naboth in a city. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, You curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. There is lying, there is bribery, there is corruption, there is murder in the quest, in the bloodlust for power and wealth and gain. That's what happened. You read the next verses. Verse 13, they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. By the way, she not only killed Naboth, she killed all of his sons. Every one of his boys. Say, how do you know that? Text doesn't say it. This text doesn't say it. But 2 Kings 9.26 says it. She killed him, and she had to kill his sons because they had to get clear title to the property. And if you're in the way, hmm, you're in the way. You're an inconvenience. Well, we'll just kill you too. See? Then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, she said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to the vineyard uh, to take possession of it. Now watch this. Watch this. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying... Watch this. Thus says the Lord. Not says Elijah. Thus says the Lord. In the place... Uh, let me back up. Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And 
you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. This is a prophecy, and it's going to come true. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He said, I have found you, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now he's, going to turn, now he's going to tell him what's going to happen to Jezebel. Because you see, there's always an end. Why do these people prosper? Why do these people prosper? I, I was all distraught until I went into the sanctuary, until I read the scriptures, and I saw their end. All this nonsense ends in God's timing. Of Jezebel, verse 23, also the Lord has spoken, saying, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Verse 25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Now, here's something that's interesting. And I, 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 give me just a few more minutes and we'll finish this. This freaks Ahab out because he knows this is real. 27, it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. I mean, he, he realized he'd run up against the Lord God Almighty. And watch this. He'd acted very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done. That's the previous verse. Now look at 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. In his son's day. You say, that's not fair. It was fair, because his sons were as evil as he was. But, but there's just a little bit, there's a little head fake, a little head faint of repentance. And do you see the goodness and loving kindness and mercy of God? How quick he is to be merciful and kind? That's, I got to tell you something. The first time I remember reading that, I got mad. I really did. I got mad. What the heck is this? this what is this? I mean, I'm all for grace, but this is ridiculous. Because once again... I tend to be harder on other people than I am on myself. I need that kind of grace. What a great God. Now, it was kind of a false repentance. Okay. So, let's go to 22. We're going to go to two more passages and we're done. Give me about eight minutes. So, what happens? The king of the south is a guy named Jehoshaphat. And... He's a godly guy, but he's easy influenced by Ahab. Ahab's a talker. He's real winsome. He can talk into doing anything. He talks Jehoshaphat into going to battle with him. He should have had nothing to do with Ahab. But he goes and, you know, all the, God, the Baal prophets saying you're going to win. Then Micaiah, a godly man, says, oh, yeah, go ahead. You're going to win. And Ahab says, no, tell me the word of God. You, I, I just want the truth. Well, okay, you're going to die. There's your truth. So then they put him in prison and give him bread and water. He didn't care because he's a man of God. He was godly and he was gutsy. He went ahead and told the truth and took the recrimination. So they go in the battle. This is 29. And this is amazing. The king of Israel, that's Ahab, verse 30, says to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle. But here, you put on these robes, the king robes. And Jehoshaphat did it. You think, what is this guy thinking? He got utterly conned. 
So the king of Israel, Ahab, disguised himself, went into battle. The king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. In other words, look for the guy in the robes. When the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Oh, it's the king of Israel. And it wasn't, but he had been duped. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. He cries out to the Lord. When the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now catch this. Now a certain man drew his bow at random. Guy wasn't even aiming. Here's a battle. He's supposed to be doing something. He just... He drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. There were seams that were not armored because you couldn't move. There was some cloth. And just by chance, <laughs> King of Israel said, Ahab, turn around and take me out of the fight. I'm severely wounded. The battle raged that day. The king was propped up in his chariot. He died at evening. The blood from the womb ran to the bottom of the chariot. 37, the king died, was brought to Samaria. They buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. The dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. There you go. There's always an end. Now flip over to 2 Kings 9. So Ahab's gone. Now you got 2 Kings 9. Do you remember the three guys that uh, Elijah anointed? Well, in 2 Kings 9, Jehu comes into the picture. And God tells him to go take out the king of Israel, one of Ahab's sons, who's wicked. One of Jehoshaphat's sons is wicked, actually married into Ahab's family and has been affected by the cancer. And so these two guys are in the same place, and Jehu goes and takes both those guys out. Okay? That's the first part of 2 Kings 9. And then you go to 2 Kings 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She heard that he had taken out her son and son-in-law. When she heard of it, she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she says, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murder? Zimri was a guy who was in recent history who she viewed as a traitor who actually had done the work of the Lord in bringing down evil. But she calls him Zimri. Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? He's looking at the guys up there. And two or three of the officials looked down on him. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. The horse did. Uh, and, and, and so she's, you know, mission accomplished. She's dead. She's gone. And this sucker's been fighting battles and running all over, and he's exhausted, so he goes over to Denny's to get a cheeseburger. Look at 34. When he came in, he ate and drank. I mean, he kills her, and then the sucker's starving. 
He came in, he ate and drank, and as he's eaten, he says, see now to the cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. Just, oh yeah, maybe, yeah, bury her. Make sure you bury her. Watch this. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. All that was less left was gristle. And they returned and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by a servant Elijah, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, this is Jezebel. There's always an end. There's always an end. I'll close with this story. Ralph Dill, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, pastor, Old Testament scholar, tells this story. And we're done. And, and it's, based, it's based on this text. And he has a principle, and the principle is the demise of the wicked should be the joy of the righteous. Now listen to what he says. It may sound crude to put it that way, but that's only because this church has stopped living in, for example, Psalms 83 and 94, and has been sucking up the bland milk of tolerance from the breasts of an anemic culture for too long. There is no biblical spine in our theology. Admittedly, we're sometimes a bit shocked by the biblical attitude in these matters. I recall a time when our boys were young, and I would read them Bible stories before bedtime. After the story, we would pray. One evening, the story was about Elijah and Jezebel, and it told how Jezebel was flipped out of the window to her death. I put aside the little book, and we went to prayer. Our oldest boy usually tried to reflect what we'd read in our story in his prayer. And so it was this night. My son Luke prayed, Dear God, thank you for letting Jezebel die. I remember being somewhat jolted by the straightforward gratitude, but thankfully I, I said nothing. Later I realized that Luke was exactly on target. It's always good news for the saints when their oppressors are judged and removed. That's the word of 2 Kings 9. Joy to the church. The queen is dead. Jesus is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And he is a great savior, but he is also a righteous judge. Galatians 6-7 says this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We run to Christ, our Savior, for forgiveness of sins. Those who turn from him refuse to repent in spite of the truth they know. They write their own ending. When oppressors are gone, we give God glory and praise. And one day all oppressors will be gone. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you that you oversee the affairs of men and that you're involved in the affairs of men. We don't anticipate the future. We simply trust you with today. You will care for us. You will provide for us. You will make a way. And you will vindicate your people. We thank you for this truth. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.